Hello, resistors, rebels, and pursuers of purpose. Welcome, welcome. I'm Brooke Warner, and I am the co-host of this weekly writing show with my other favorite co-host, Grant Faulkner. Grant, uh, I'm looking forward to this week's show because I love a good publishing show, as you know, and our guest, Joe Beale, stands out in the world of publishing as a person who really does seem unafraid to take risks, though we're going to get into that in the interview with him Because it's a truism that people who take risks aren't necessarily completely unafraid, but maybe they feel the fear and do it anyway, or maybe they just have really good reasons for taking uh, chances that seem risky to us, but on the inside, as was the case with Joe, it totally made monetary sense. So Grant, I'm curious, what's your relationship to fear when it comes to making decisions that might upset the status quo? Yeah, I actually heard the same definition of fear or courage from from an astronaut on on a podcast, and he he said it wasn't that he didn't feel fear, but that he was just able to go ahead and do what he needed to do in the face of the fear, and that was his definition of courage to be able to act with fear. And I thought that was really good, and I love the way Joe gets into it about um, having a business where you're making decisions not based on fear but on optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but per your question, though, it's you know it's really situational for me. I think it, it depends on how much I think the status quo is wrong or insufficient. And if I feel like that, I tend to sound off and do what I think <laughs> is right. Um, I mean, I think it, at, at the heart, that's that's why I became a writer. You know, I chose to disregard all the naysayers. And it's a big part of what I do at NaNoWriMo, which I think of, you know, as an organization that disrupts the status quo in a lot of a lot of good, but sometimes risky ways. But I've also had my moments where in, in the heat of the moment, I haven't spoken up or taken action. So So I've let my fears limit me, of course. Yeah, I mean, we certainly all have. And uh, I've I've shared, too, that the biggest risk I ever took was starting She Writes Press. And that was especially because it involved leaving such a prestigious and coveted job. And the leap at the time felt scary, but not as scary as it would now, which made me think of a couple things. And one is that I think we're probably all a little bit more risk tolerant when we're young. Uh, and I think that has to stem from the fact that we have more responsibility the older we get, mostly financial especially if you have kids. Uh, And then also that some of us are just more hardwired for risk. I I do think there are also people who are totally counterphobic, which means that they fling themselves into risk, you know, almost as a default behavior. But I am not that person. Um, My default emotional state of being is anxiety, which is fear, which is actually phobic. (laughs) If you think (laughs) about it, if I'm going to deconstruct it. Um, But I don't love that underlying anxious hum. And I am the same way as that astronaut, though, like I overcome it, I do it anyway. But it's definitely buzzing there in the background more than I would care for it to. Yeah, Brooke, sometimes I feel like fear is buzzing in the background constantly throughout the day, or, or it is with me. So it's it's a very present thing that we have to navigate through. But I just want to name Joe's uh, biggest risks, just so, so people know what we're talking about. And I am curious if it was more personal than professional for him. But the thing he did that's such a big deal from a publishing perspective is leave Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's something that very few publishers would ever consider. So do you know any other publishers who've done this, Brooke? Uh, I really do not. The only other publisher I know who doesn't sell to Amazon is a military specific publisher. And so they're doing books that are geared towards such a niche audience. But most trade publishers would rather, you know, crawl into a hole than leave (laughs) Amazon. So it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So let's go deeper into that. What about leaving Amazon would trigger anxiety for you as a publisher? 
Yeah, the biggest thing is that it means leaving your distributor. And Joe had the same distributor that we have now. And I read in an interview, he shared uh, that that was one of the harder things is that you leave those relationships behind. And he, like us, you know, had had a long standing relationship with these people. And you cultivate these relationships and these friendships with colleagues that you see on a regular basis. And they're selling your books into the marketplace. And so that's a pretty intimate relationship. You know, there are people who are really like nurturing your creative mandate and your mission. And so when you leave a distributor, for me, that would mean abandoning them, but also more importantly, um, abandoning a certain legitimacy that I feel like I've fought for and earned. Uh, so those are all emotional aspects. But with the financial aspects, it means self-distributing. So Joe's talking about making more money. And I have no doubt that that's true. But you have to figure out how to warehouse your books. You have to figure out how to sell books directly from your website. Uh, you have to sell books into retail accounts. You know, all of this probably means hiring your own sales force. And so it's really no small deal. Plus, you have to make up for whatever sales you're losing from Amazon. And so for a lot of publishers, that's 30 to 60% of sales. So, you know, for most of us, uh, despite my very mixed feelings about Amazon, it would be a real struggle to sever all of those relationships. Yeah, that is just hearing you say that it sounds very complicated and very strenuous and very tiring, actually. And it's fascinating that Joe has done this and not only succeeded, but that Microcosm Publishing, his publishing company, is truly thriving. And and Brooke, I know you recently purchased Microcosm's little pamphlet book called How to Resist Amazon and Why from an indie bookstore. So tell me about what what that book inspired you uh, in that book. What what inspired you to want to have Joe on the show? I mean, Joe is already someone I knew. of rather. I mean, we were supposed to sit on a panel together at Pub West last year. COVID happened, you know, so COVID kept happening. It was one of the waves. Um, and so they didn't come. I did, but we had been talking a little bit ahead of the panel. And so I looked into them much more deeply at that point in preparation for that panel. And and they have a presence in the industry. I mean, they're a well-loved indie publisher. They've been around for a while. So I picked up the pamphlet and I was like, oh, of course, this is microcosm, you know, about how to resist Amazon. On. It's an eye-opening little book, both for publishers and consumers. Um, you know, and I, I don't want or need to get on my high horse here about abuses of power or monopolies. But if you do want to continue to buy everything from Amazon, I think it's an important book to read. Um, of course, you can't buy it on Amazon, but you can buy it on microcosmpublishing.com or on bookshop.org. And we'll put the URL in the show notes. But um, the little 22 page booklet inspired me to bring him on the show because I wanted to talk to him about this. I wasn't sure if I would have the guts to follow suit and join him on, you know, this kind of boundary pushing path. So I thought maybe he could talk about what it's like and see if that might plant the seed of some future inspiration for me. But I'm not even close to thinking about leaving my distributor or leaving Amazon, truth be told. Well, it's interesting, Brooke, because I I think of you as a disruptor. So it's interesting to think about all the different kinds of disrupting that people can do and how you can disrupt in silos. And because you're trying to change the industry through legitimizing indie authors, but since legitimacy is at the core of your work for your authors, it it would take a lot to eschew something like traditional distribution. And so for Joe, the decision to leave Amazon Amazon was really a a protest of sorts, and his indie spirit obviously runs deep. It was so refreshing to hear him talk about that in the interview. Uh, And he didn't like getting squeezed, or he didn't like how Amazon basically unilaterally negotiated its discounts, and he basically had to say yes. In the interview in How to Resist Amazon, Joe writes that he felt like prey. 
And I'm guessing that a lot of publishers are frustrated with this kind of business negotiation. Yeah. I mean, frustration is an understatement and we have no recourse. And that's where being a monolith comes in, Amazon. Like they do just get to say, this is how things are going to be. And then you accept it or they don't sell your books. And big, big companies like these don't really care what the voices of dissent say because they're not trying to please or appease people. Amazon doesn't really care that they're seen as a bully because that uh, status doesn't stop people from purchasing from them. So it, uh, I, I think that's just important to know. Like they're winning, you know, they're, they're definitely winning. That's the takeaway. Huh. Well, I, I do hope that listeners will go and check out microcosmpublishing.com and see how they're set up. It's a great example of a very navigable website. And they sell a lot of stuff besides their own books. They sell other people's books and stickers and shirts and other swag. I love looking through it and seeing what was out there. And it's it's a great business. And part of what's appealing about it is their, their vast catalog, which they've been growing for nearly 30 years now. And it's an impressive enterprise and a, and a great model for publishers who have the risk tolerance to follow suit. So maybe you can browse their titles for a second while you wait for Joe to make his entrance right after this musical interlude that Brooke and I picked out just for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to have Joe Beal with us today. Joe is a self-made autistic publisher and filmmaker who draws origins, inspiration, and methods from punk rock. Joe is the founder and CEO of Microcosm Publishing, which is Publishers Weekly's number one fastest growing publisher of last year. Joe has been featured in Time Magazine, NPR, Publishers Weekly, Art of Autism, and elsewhere. And he's also the author of many books and the director of five feature films and hundreds of shorts. Joe, you're joining us from Portland, Oregon. Welcome. Thank you. That is a spectacular uh, welcome. Yeah, so excited to talk to you. I want to actually open with a question about risk taking. I I feel like you're a person who takes a lot of risks and notably uh, the work you publish, first of all, I mean, uh, and we'll get into that a bit more, but I also wanted to ask you about this decision that you made in 2018 to no longer supply your books to Amazon, which meant leaving your distributor. Uh, And I'm wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about that, but also speak to your relationship to risk. I mean, are you a counterphobic kind of person or is there fear involved with something like this, but you just kind of do it anyway uh, because it's the right thing to do? You know, it's funny. I never thought about it in the way that you framed it. When we made that decision in 2018, it had been, you know, we had had staff for years, you know, we had um, a major account salesperson where literally on her first day at work, she was like, why do we have a distributor? We could do so much more on our own. And, you know, and I, I think it's more than risk. We approach things, I approach things from just a much more like pragmatic view where we're looking at it from 
you know, how do the systems work? What do we want to get out of it? What is the shortest path between two points? You know, we're really looking at it from like a systems thinking point of view. And um, so when we made that decision, it was because, you know, I mean, on some level, sure, it's the right thing to do. But from our stance, it was that, you know, we had one account that was taking the most predatory terms. They weren't really bringing a lot to the table. We, you know, so we weren't getting a lot out of it. And then it got to the point where, you know, we've watched over 20 some years where the relationship to the distributor became more of a paperwork, you know, busy work kind of relationship rather than, you know, or as one publisher joked to me, you know, he said, every time I ask my distributor for something, they give me more paperwork to fill out. And it's almost like it's like to, you know, keep me busy so I can't like ask for more things. And, you know, and it's more, and I get it that it's the, there's a necessary nature of bureaucracy to anything that you do, you know, it has to be organized and they have to have good records. But then on another level, we had always been the most successful when we were self-distributing. And I had wanted to do that uh, way back in 2011, but it wasn't quite right yet then. And so by 2018, when we made that decision in July, it was more along the lines of like, Maybe if we work really hard, we can do just as good as, you know, like we are under our distributor. And, you know, it, it was immediately we were up 42% in the first quarter, and then we had more than doubled by the end of that year. So I think, you know, it's hard to remember, even though that's only really four and five years ago. I, I, I want to say that was mostly a decision brought about by like how many hours a week do we have to put into this relationship versus how could we better spend those hours getting our books to the people that love them. It's always interesting how decisions are made, Joe, and that was fascinating to hear. I'm going to go back in time again with you because you, you, your publishing company, Microcosm, was started in a bedroom closet as a record label in 1996, and now it's one of the oldest independent book publishing houses in Portland. And one of the strange things of getting older and time passing is how we see what we're doing, especially with creative endeavors like yours, because they, you know, they go from being these very bootstrap endeavors to being something much more legitimate and, and, and with that comes more responsibility. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about the evolution of microcosm and why you think you've been able to have such longevity and growth as an indie publisher. Sure. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. And I, and I, it's interesting because, you know, I'm closer to it, of course, but so I don't really see that trajectory because, you know, to me it was so incremental and over such a long period of time Hmm. that, you know, I think of that as like, we're still pretty much doing the same thing we were doing 23 years ago, but or 28, you know, I can't even keep track anymore. You know, more than a sign of success when you can't keep track. (laughs) But then when I look at it from a, like a starker timeline where I'm like, right, things are very different now. There's, you know, there's, we have departments and, you know, we have much bigger staff and, you know, we, we have multiple, you know, we just bought a third warehouse, uh, last month, you know, and it's things like that, that, you know, just wouldn't have even been possible 
even 10 years ago. And so, you know, I guess it's like we started out, you know, I started out once upon a time, it was just me, to really kind of create the tools and resources that were lacking for me as a child. So I looked at it from the point of view of, you know, looking at a lot of the reading that had been assigned to me and how much it just did not resonate with me. And then looking at what that could look like in a, you know, sort of a radical re-envisioning of like, what would make that interesting? What would help connect, you know, and, and I wasn't even thinking of it in terms of books at the time. I was just thinking of it as like, books are a great way to package information, you know, and mind you, this is the 90s. So it's like, we, you know, the internet was very much what it was. But even then, I guess, for whatever reason, I didn't think of that as the best way to convey those things. And, you know, and I think that was why we sort of focused early on like e-commerce and direct to consumer and things that, you know, they didn't have those names yet at that time. They were just, you know, people would be like, you have a website, you know, was kind of more (laughs) like how that conversation went in the 90s. But, you know, and so we did those things. And then what happened was people were very positively responding to what we were doing, the subject matter that we engaged with, you know, the specificity of the books. And then very quickly, it was clear where the gaps were in the industry. And definitely in the 90s, what we were doing was, I would say, like a lot more forward thinking, whereas a lot of the bookstores just didn't get it and didn't want to touch it. So we were sold more in specialty stores. And then what we did was, you know, we sort of created what is now called specialty markets, where you sell books to places that do not primarily sell books. And now that's like a whole niche within the industry, you know. And Whereas at that time, we were met a lot more with like, oh, you kids don't know what you're doing. And then, you know, but that has really served us really well because it allowed us to kind of grow and evolve without changing how we do book development or how we, you know, think of like our mission or our role within the industry. And we didn't really have competitors because we had been doing something so different from everybody else that by the time people started to imitate us, we were really, really flattered. And, but they're also, you know, they couldn't really cut into that because we were so established in those segments, you know. I'm glad you mentioned that, the whole, like, you kids don't know what you're doing, because I think there's something about when you're young and green and, you know, willing to take those risks, you're kind of pushing boundaries, whether you realize it or not. And I I was just, you know, as I dove into your stuff, that's what I felt is like microcosm and you specifically too are pushing boundaries. And the reason that I called you up to interview you actually is because of this little book pamphlet <laughs> that you guys did called uh, How to Resist Amazon and Why, uh, which we're going to recommend everyone read. It's a fabulous little booklet. Um, but beyond that, you have other pretty edgy and interesting titles. I mean, about neurodivergence, specifically autism. Uh, you have the Unfuck series, <laughs> you Unfuck Your Addiction, Unfuck Your, unfuck your Intimacy, uh, and then a Neurodivergent Pride series with a book specifically 
specifically called Proud to be Retarded. You have a book about psychedelics and microdosing, actually many books. So I'm just wondering with books like that, I must, I assume you sometimes get pushback. Uh, and I'm curious how you deal with that, you know, whether that's readers or buyers and, you know, when someone's offended by some of the things that you're doing, which are actually really edgy or clearly there's reclaiming going on, wh- how do you handle that and what's your response to it? Well, it's like anything that you do in life. It's not for everybody and you wouldn't want it to be for everybody. And, you know, and again, it's like everything that we do really goes back to my upbringing and the way that, you know, I grew up in punk rock and and it wasn't, you know, and I, I guess it was meant to be challenging and it was meant to be subversive, but the point of those things is the fundamental functional aspects of them to help people. And when you do something like that and, you know, specifically we were doing and are doing book development based on like what would have been interesting to us, like what does appeal to us, you know, as readers, as people that, you know, love books. And so, Again, you're going to repel some people when you express yourself honestly. Right. And I don't see that as a bad thing because it's like, um, you know, I think of it more like when you're honest and direct and communicative, that brings in the people that it is right for. And those are the people that it matters for, you know. Right. So to the major shift over these years – decades really when we started out you know we were definitely met with as you as you said you know like and you know like a, the kind of arrogance you could only really have as a teenager you know and then um now that shifted where you know somewhere along the line people began to embrace what we were doing and we're like, oh, this is really cool, actually. And in a lot of cases, that conversation was much more along the lines of the buyers saying, like, I don't think I could have this in my store. Like, this is pretty far out there. And to then coming back a few years later and saying, you know, I realized that my customers love this kind of thing. I just wasn't comfortable with it yet. And I have to get ready for it. So we're in it for the very long game. And the thing that really has served us is, you know, we're going to be there next year and we're going to be there the year after that. And if you're not ready for it now, you might be ready for it in five years or 10 years, you know. And it's when we did, um, I think the original Unfuck Your Brain was 2016. And when we did that book, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we got a lot of pushback, but much, much more than that, we got very enthusiastic responses. Um, I mean, it's, that book is sold like in the mall. It's sold, you know, in all kinds of places that we've never been able to reach before. And it's not because it's less edgy, let's just say, you know, so like that honest expression of self, I feel like that is the secret as much as people have frequently framed it as the weakness. 
Joe, I love how that is a great business plan unto itself, the honest expression of self. Mm-hmm. And that you've mentioned uh, several times that your your business was spawned from a punk rock ethos, which I'm I almost every time I encounter that, it's a good thing. And in fact, NaNoWriMo came from a punk rock ethos. A lot of people don't know that. But um, I want to touch on actually that you're an author of many books yourself. And I'm curious about if you have a strategy or goal when it comes to what what you publish in your name. And in terms of your identity, are you more aligned with being a publisher or an author or are the two interdependent for you? Um, so I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I never thought of, well, and I think I largely still don't really think of myself as an author. I think of it more like I have a certain number of obsessions and I have a certain amount of access and I have um, a certain amount of feedback that I receive due to my role in the publishing industry. And so what happens a lot is, you know, I'll be at an event, you know, whether, you know, normally it's more of like a consumer show than like a trade show and people will come up and they'll be like, you know, it'd be really cool. Be like a book about X, Y, Z. And you're like, Oh yeah, that would be really cool. And then, you know, that'll percolate maybe over years. And then if we don't run into the perfect person to write that book, sometimes I'll come back and be like, oh, yeah, I could maybe do that. That might actually work out. And it's interesting because it didn't – it was never really the plan. It was more like those were the projects where I couldn't really find somebody else to take it on, you know, if that makes sense. (laughs) And so I like somewhat reluctantly was like – you know, and and I think anybody that's written a book, it's like – knows it's a ton of work so you have to love it and you have to love it from beginning to end and you know i think any like anybody else that has maybe written a book some of this stuff it's just like stories that are so cool that you can't not tell them you know and and i think about it too from the perspective of like i just had so many boring things force-fed at me that i really want to be like look you guys books can be so cool I love that, Joe. It's also funny um, and and so true. And you mentioned, uh, well, that that little book that I read and mentioned before, How to Resist Amazon, um, you're interviewed in that book. And you said that there's a myth that publishing is going down the tubes and that, in fact, there are more indie bookstores springing up all the time. And you say your sales are up significantly. Indie bookstores are on the rise. And really that part of our problem as an industry is that we bemoan our powerlessness in the face of Amazon and we do nothing about it. So I'm a publisher. (laughs) What would you say to me and other publishers who want to follow in your footsteps? But also, like, how do you as a publisher explain to new authors your stance on Amazon, especially because authors are so Amazon obsessed? Right. I would say even more than that, authors' moms are Amazon obsessed. That (laughs) tends to be the one, like, the ones we hear about the most where they're like, my mom wants to know why my book is not on Amazon. Right. Or my, you know, and it's like, that's really the kind of thing, you know, and I get it. It's like, for many people, you know, what we tell them is just don't worry about it. Pretend like it doesn't exist. You'll, you'll sleep better. And then we can show them the data. And I will tell you that when we first made that decision, a number of our best-selling authors were nervous. And, you know, because we did not prep them for this in advance that we were going to do this. You know, they just then began seeing it and they were kind of like, I don't know, do you you know what you're doing? And, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, to be fair. 
But then, you know, when it was, or as one of them put it to me, when my royalty checks doubled overnight, I was like, well, keep it going. You clearly know what you're doing. Right. Money talks. Right. Well, it, <laughs> it shows that we didn't know it, but we were really, we meant to maintain. We didn't mean to grow. And we just thought this would be a more streamlined workflow. And it was, but that also obviously gave us the opportunity to have more people hours to do more things. But I think the answer to your question is that you really want to speak your ambitions, not your fears. And that is a much better course for decision making because you can be afraid of things all day long and have that guide your actions, but that's never going to take you where you want to go. I love that as business advice, Joe. And in closing, based on that, I admire, you know, the work you're doing so much and you're an activist publisher, which is, you know, the best way to be. And when I think of your history, you know, beyond the record label that you started out with, you also started out with zines and, and then this has all grown into, you know, you being a major indie publisher, but you're still young. So you have a, you have a, a long road ahead of you. And I'm curious, is there anything you or microcosm would like to do or see uh, with regard to to affecting more change in this industry in the next 10 years? Or, or or do you have things that are still in the works? Oh, absolutely. And thank you for calling me young. That is not something that people call me regularly. <laughs> but, and, but, it, but you're right. It's that because I started so young that, you know, I could have a 50 or 60 year career or even more than that, but, you know, and still be accomplishing things just because, well, you know, I mean, I see it all the time where like, there'll be like the obits where somebody is 94 years old and publishing and not retired. <laughs> and you're like, that's kind of awesome. I don't know if that's the life I want, but it's probably the life I'll have, you know, and, and, but anyway, and I think it does come down to, as you said, this idea of like, what are your ambitions? Like, what do you want to accomplish? And, you know, I'm at my point in my career where I've accomplished so much more than I ever thought would be possible. You know, I mean, I never thought we would have a book that would sell millions of copies or, you know, have a thousand plus titles or anything like that. And so, you know, that kind of made me reassess in the last three years to look at it from a different point of view where it's like, I want to show modeling that you can that the the world is still your oyster in publishing, that you can create your visionary, you know, model, no matter what that is, and that you aren't reliant on corporation as savior, that you can, you know, consolidation has really wrecked the industry in the last decade. I mean, I think that's hard to argue with. But it doesn't mean that that determines your course of action. You can really still build the model and be the kind of publisher that you want to be from a visionary point of view rather than from that being dictated to you. Well, inspiring, Joe. We were supposed to sit on a panel together and then COVID hit again or, you know, for the third or fourth time. So let's uh, let's make sure we do that sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been, I really enjoy anything where you can look at how the world could be different and how other publishers could like create an even better model than anybody has thought of yet. I love it, Joe. Thank you so much. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Brooke, there's something interesting going on with one of our previous right-minded guests, Corey Doctorow, who who is always such a challenging and disruptive thinker and author, uh, especially when it comes to our technological world, is taking on Audible. He's been doing this for a while, actually, but right now he's running a Kickstarter campaign so that he won't have to publish his most recent book with Audible. And just some background on this, Audible controls 90% of the audiobook market, and Corey said that Audible won't carry his books because if you want to sell your audiobooks on Audible, you have to let them add Amazon's digital rights management DRM to them, and he refuses. And this is a very complicated subject, but DRM essentially allows uh, Amazon to wield power over their suppliers, and Corey doesn't want to have all audiobooks under the control of a single company, especially since Amazon is known for wringing margin out of its suppliers. Right. We were just talking about earlier, right? So uh, Corey is great. Not only does he write novels that take on automated authoritarian themes, but he also takes principled approaches to protecting his work from corporate monopolies. So I love this. It's totally aligned with our topic today. Um, You know, and the DRM, which you mentioned, stands for Digital Rights Management. The gist of what that means is that every book that is sold on Audible is permanently locked to Amazon. So if a reader breaks up with Amazon, they have to kiss all their audiobooks goodbye. It's one of the reasons that I still have my Audible account, frankly. Um, and that's tough because if an author breaks up with Amazon, they also lose all their reviews, which is another huge thing that authors are told to cultivate. And then their readers can't follow them to a fair alternative without losing all their books too. So it's they really do have you locked in. I mean, it's kind of a, a, a little bit of a hostage situation. Yeah. And even though, you know, Corey's running a Kickstarter, but but he said that this is this this whole endeavor is coming at a cost to him. He said that his agent told him that he's forfeited enough money to pay off his mortgage and put his kids through college at this point. But, but he says he's fine with that because he doesn't want to work with a monopoly or help a monopoly profit. Um, it's definitely tough, though, because he's he's running a Kickstarter to raise money to pay to record his own audiobooks and distribute them. And he uses Kickstarters to pre-sell them. And he's done well. And I'm happy for him. Um, his first one, you know, smashed every record. Record, and the second one did well as well. But obviously not every author is Corey Doctorow, so not every author can do this. So I'm wondering, Brooke, if you know, you know of other solutions, are there other ways to do an in-run around Audible, other audiobook companies to work with? There are. I mean, authors can and should check out the Audiobook Publishers Association as a starting point because that's an association that works to educate authors about these very possibilities. Uh, You can, of course, self-produce every aspect of an audiobook just like you can a book and then you self-publish your audiobook and you don't have to upload your book to ACX, which is Amazon's platform, which then drives purchases to Audible. You can certainly choose not to have your books available there, um, just like uh, Joe chooses not to have his books 
it's available on Amazon. So it does mean distributing through other channels. So Find Away is probably the primary one that is giving ACX a good run for their money, especially now that they're owned by Spotify, so they have better distribution. There's Libro FM, which a lot of people love. They're a social purpose corporation that makes it possible for readers to buy audiobooks through their local bookstores. So authors just need to dig around a bit and see what their options are. And I so appreciate that people like Corey and Joe are leading the way here to show that there are these other ways to thrive in this business without Amazon. Uh, I think that they're role models for how we can do things differently and that we don't need to be afraid of the consequences. Yeah, we definitely need more choices. Um, So they're opening up those choices uh, for everybody to make it a healthier ecosystem, I hope. And, you know, we're living in a time where, where, you know, our time demands that authors know more about the business of publishing a book than ever. And that's daunting. Uh, And that's because there are also more tools of control and independence than there ever been. So just want to remind listeners that this is part of our mission. We'll be here with you every week to help you be independent and in control of writing your story and more. We're also just very thankful for your listenership. And, and, And just last night, actually, I was at an event for my book. And an attendee told me that she listened to Right Minded, and that's why she was there. And I was just so touched by the creative connection that we had and the conversation we had. So please tell your friends about Right Minded so we can all have lots of creative conversations together. We'll see you next week.